0: What also makes epistemology difficult is that you've got all these technical facts, and yet it's rooted in natural language. Mm. And all of the things that made epistemology difficult for a thousand years from its inception are still in place, making it difficult. And then there's all this new stuff, making it more difficult. So yeah, I, I agree with you. Philosophy of mathematics, you're right, you have to learn a lot of mathematics, but it's also difficult for other reasons. It's difficult for reasons, I think, anyway, because um, there's a lot of seductions, there's a lot of cognitive seductions that kick in, and they're the things that drove us to be Platonists to begin with. We became Platonists not for silly reasons but because of of deep-seated views we had about how truth worked or why a subject matter would be um, successfully applied.
1: Hello, my geese This is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's Podcast, number 95. And this episode is with Jody Azuni, who is a familiar face and voice to the Robinson's Podcast universe because Jody has been on two podcasts with me already, and I am, because, as always, unprepared. I do not have the numbers directly in front of me, but now I do. And Jody was on episodes 45 and 75, in which we talked about nominalism in the philosophy of mathematics. That was the first episode, number 45. And then in 75, we talked more as if I recall correctly about mathematical logic and formal languages and natural languages though we also jumped around a bit and also I should add that in both episodes we talked a lot about poetry his poetry and the poetry of others but in this episode episode 95 and again because I'm disorganized Jody is professor of philosophy at Tufts University we talked about a much more focused topic which is his manuscript that is currently under review on epistemology called challenging knowledge and then we also talked about an earlier book of his that this was less the focus attributing knowledge so as you can tell thus far the the episode is about epistemology if you didn't glean that from the title because it though it is as yet titled i think it will be titled Something along the lines of knowledge and skepticism. But anyway, we take epistemology somewhat at the beginning, at least the beginning of where contemporary discussions begin, with the foundations of knowledge and how we can justify the knowledge that we may or may not have. And then we get into Jody's current book, which I've mentioned, uh, Challenging Knowledge, and how he attempts to undercut skepticism, which itself is concerned with undercutting knowledge. And I'm not going to say too much more about it because, as I mentioned in the episode, we start from the beginning and don't really presuppose too much about epistemology. And Jody is great at explaining all of these very basic positions and debates within epistemology. The other thing I should mention is that, as always, these reviews, comments, uh, subscribings—they're all extraordinarily helpful. And with that out of the way, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Jody. Our last two conversations were about poetry, at least at the the beginning and the ending. Uh, And then we sandwiched philosophy of math and logic into the middle of them. But we haven't yet touched on epistemology more broadly construed beyond how, I mean, it figures into logic and the philosophy of math. So since that's primarily how I know you, when and why did exploring skepticism or exploring challenging skepticism (laughs) as a serious research program land on your radar?
0: Well, um, Jesus, um, in a sense, the radar, it was there right from the beginning. Um, It's very hard. Um, I mean, look, my earliest philosophical interest, believe it or not, was in free will. Hmm. (laughs) When I was, you know... um, in fifth grade, I became convinced that free will was right, and I was I stayed convinced of that for many years, and I would argue against determinism in all sorts of ways. Um, skepticism was something I ran across in college, and it was, you know, I had the reaction I think a lot of people have. Maybe only one or two people, Peter Unger and somebody else, don't have this reaction, which was... There was a fallacy of some sort, and it was just something I had in mind, and I would periodically um, uh, think about it, but I never really dealt with it because there were other things that were constantly um, uh, coming up first, as it were, okay, Uh, things in logic or in mathematics and language, so... um, So it wasn't that I, what I was scared of is there's a way in which sometimes, you know, what happens with mathematicians, right, is at a certain point, they, quote, retire. And what they do is they kick back and they do philosophy of mathematics. And the rest of us are doing this. And, um, you know, sometimes with philosophers, uh, they kick back and retire and they've been doing something and then they do skepticism. And I so hope that I'm not one of those. That's not what I'm doing. Um, so it come it came into play because it was sort of the next topic for me, uh, having to do with two things I'd been working on up till that point, which is philosophy of language, all these issues in philosophy of language that I'd be grappling with. And um basically epistemology in the context of the sciences and in mathematics and then these dovetailed uh finally I was approaching epistemology in the traditional way or rather not in the traditional way but because that to some extent that's been a moving target especially in the late 20th 21st century but I I had reached a point where I was ready to go after it and that's when the book emerged. So, I mean, there's very few philosophical topics, I think, that, you know, suddenly land on my radar. It's more like, oh, I'm ready to do this. And sometimes, oh, I now have the tools to do this. So that's, I don't know, that's a rather long answer. I hope it's an answer to your question.
1: It certainly is. <clears throat> and speaking of coming at epistemology in a traditional way in the beginning of challenging knowledge which i should i guess at the outset say this is a manuscript we're discussing that is currently under review so it won't be coming out probably for a year i would guess right or, year or two,
0: i guess yeah I don't okay know. um yeah it's it's still under review so the um, it's a follow-up book, that's fair to say, to Attributing Knowledge, right, right. which came out in 2020. So, um, so, yeah. Anyway, okay, go-
1: great. And I think we'll probably touch on that as well. But for now, I just wanted to point out where the content we'll be discussing is coming from. But speaking of coming at epistemology in a, in a traditional way, you begin the discussion in Challenging Knowledge with these three basic positions in epistemology uh, beyond skepticism about our ability to have knowledge in the first place. And those are foundationalism, uh, coherentism, and infinitism. And since these are often the starting points for discussions of epistemology, maybe we could start by just laying them out and why, or some reasons why they're generally held not to work.
0: Okay. Um, they kind of arise from, um, a picture of justification, uh, more or less explicit. So the idea is that, um, if you know something, so in some sense, you have a justification for it. So that, that's really the starting point. Um, everything I'm going to say is challengeable. I just want to make that point. Uh, yeah. And much of what I'm going to say is challenged by me. Okay. Anyway, that said, you start with this picture that if you know something, there's a justification. And then it looks like you're introduced to a justification regress of some sort. Um, and this is the, uh, a very, very old argument, or at least it has an ancestor. In Greek philosophy, that's very, very old. In what sense the argument as it shows up in the contemporary setting is that original argument. Who knows? Uh, Historians have a lot to say about this. But anyway, you've got justification. It looks like you get a justification regress um, because you have to supply a justification for the justification. The idea is it can't dangle in the air. So now this can go on for a little while. And then we have three options, it looks like. And so this really does look like a very tight, um, logical squeeze. Um, You can stop, and that looks like, well, then somehow in some sense, where you stop has got to be a foundation. Or you can uh, kind of uh, circle back or in some way um, find that what you've been coming up with is mutually supporting so that looks like some version of coherentism uh and then the third thing is you can just keep going okay and so those are roughly the three positions now the uh foundationalist position there's been debate in the literature for a long time it's it's it shows up in all the anthologies where you know people are trying to say look um It doesn't make sometimes it's it's not rational to have a foundation, an epistemic foundation, because that's a place where you stop, where you don't have a justification, because if you had a justification, you wouldn't have stopped. Okay, so if you did stop, you you did it without a reason. And I think Klein literally tries to take that phrase literally without a reason. Well, you can't do something without a reason. Oh, that's horrible. So. That's one way of alluding to where the foundational, um, uh, foundationalism seems to face a problem. And then there are other sorts of things like, well, you know, what's the nature of this foundation? Oh, it has to be a priori that leads to all sorts of concerns. So there's issues about how to categorize the foundation in a way that looks philosophically acceptable. And there is exactly, you know, what would make it rational to have a foundation, The coherentism picture looks like it's in trouble for a variety of reasons. As long as you don't have circularity, Um, um, that almost everyone agrees is terrible. Almost everyone, right? In philosophy, I used to say uh, no position, um, uh, everything rises from the dead in philosophy, just like in Hollywood. So that no position is ever killed forever. I'm actually given the current population of philosophers, there are so many of them, and they all want to occupy unique spaces. No position dies anymore. That's what I almost think is now the situation. But anyway, that's sociology. We'll let it go. You should write a book. The Sociology of Philosophy? Or just No,
1: that was a bad joke. Those were two good sayings.
0: Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. okay. Anyway, that said, um, uh, the A coherentist picture is somehow the knowledge uh, works together. So the justification comes from some sense in which uh, the beliefs are working together. And the thought is more than consistency has to be involved. And now the question is, what is that more and how do you characterize it? And there's worries about that. So, I mean, what I'm trying to get at here is that none of these none of these positions look fatal. It, it's just they all look like mm, they're not quite working or we're not happy with them. And then the infinitism, which to some extent was an outlier until, I don't know, uh, late 20th century, it was always thought <clears throat> you really had two positions given that you couldn't go on forever, just justifying after justifying after justifying. And now the thought is, yeah, you can go on forever. That's okay. Um, you know, and you can be an optimist about it or a pessimist about it, but you can just keep offering justifications. And actually in attributing, I wanted to look at that very carefully because one of the interesting things that happens when you probabilistically support a position is that what happens with um, straight inference, deductive inference is that the support is given only by the premises. But in a probabilistic inference, the support is given by the premises and by the fact that they probabilistically support. And because of that, you can get a kind of um, convergence. So it goes on infinitely, but it doesn't have to go on for good. And so I found that really, really interesting and uh dealt with it and attributing to see if it was going to give us a way to make infinitism work. And I drew the conclusion that it wouldn't. But, so that my view is that none of them really work. And, um, and, and that actually, as it turns out, uh, the way out is kind of straightforward.
1: Well, before we go on to that way out, just as an item of fun historical interest is yeah. this greek analog to the problem of justification uh Gripa's trilemma
0: yeah 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 i'm sorry um i so, tend to be can we go
1: through that just for fun really quickly what? Can oh, we go through
0: well you know it, it it's just what i kind of said you know okay. you you've got to offer a justification for what you said well okay you either stop you either circle back or you keep going forever. Those are your only options. And as far as a grip is concerned, right, none of them work. And so you can't justify anything. And now what? the question is, what kind of skepticism does this result in? Mm-hmm. Because, of course, that's not straightforward either. Okay. But it's justification skepticism. So you end up not being able to justify anything. And therefore, you don't know. Hmm. Well,
1: here maybe is where at least the first place that your book, Attributing Knowledge, what it means to know something, will come into play. But there's an interesting discussion in Challenging Knowledge about why these sorts of questions don't really apply these questions surrounding justification don't really apply to baboons or hyenas who may in fact have knowledge but how this whole question of justification is very important and illuminating with regard to human epistemology and meta knowledge in particular
0: Actually, actually some human epistemology Okay. There's a sense, there's a real sense in which a lot of our knowledge is continuous with or uh, indistinguishable from the kind of knowledge that animals have. We have a lot of knowledge that I don't think we have justifications for. Anyway, yeah. So should I go right into that, that, that point? Or
1: Well, well here's the, the, yeah, here, I guess there were two questions there. One, I thought it might be worth just saying what not, or how it is that you're construing knowledge that allows both animals and humans to have it. But then also the second part is why this question of justification becomes of interest with regard to epistemology and meta knowledge.
0: Okay. So the idea that was pressed hard in attributing went something like this, um, there are a bunch of what looked like necessary conditions for knowledge that people had. Um, The history of this has turned out to be more tangled than it looked. I mean, what a lot of us thought reading Gettier and uh, was that something like, well, that here were three necessary conditions, right? Uh, If you know something, you believe it. If you know something, your belief is justified and uh, it's true. Okay. And the thought was, well, this is a, a traditional, longstanding um, uh, set of conditions on knowledge, and it looked necessary and sufficient. And what Gettier showed is it's not sufficient. Right. And then um, big, big um, uh, industry trying to find out, uh, add conditions. And the, it was more or less, it's been attributed to. to um, one of the things that happened—I I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly DeTaut wanted to argue. Actually, that notion, that idea, is not traditional, uh, and it emerged really about ten years before, right? Um, uh, Gettier in, in, at the hands of Norman Malcolm and Ayer and um, someone else, I think. And uh, so that was the picture. And it turns out, actually, that's not even right because Malcolm never bought the justified true belief picture. He thought um, you. He actually thought the word was ambiguous. And furthermore, um, the the there was an infallible fallibilist version and a fallibilist version, and the fallibilist version had four conditions. Because confidence was an independent condition. You had to be confident, too. So it turns out the the history is very peculiar. But that aside, um, I basically argue that none of these are necessary conditions. Um, And I argue on the basis of usage. Truth is a condition, right? If you know P, P. But apart from that, you don't have to believe P to know it. You don't have to um, uh, have a justification in hand. Um, You don't have to uh, be confident. In fact, you may have very good rational reasons to believe not P, even though you know P. And the claim is, the claim that I try to make in attributing is that um, this can be shown on the basis of usage and it can be. Once we have good tools, so now it's philosophy of language for a moment, once we have good tools for recognizing when we're exaggerating and when we're speaking metaphorically, we can actually look at usage to figure out how it's working. And uh, that's what I claim to do uh, in the book. And that what falls out as a corollary, very straightforwardly, is that um, animals know all sorts of things and cash machines know things cash machine can suddenly not know who you are which can be a very awkward experience especially if you need money i'm sure Um, dan dennett likes uh, this view of cash machines who we were just talking about no dan does like uh he actually does does like attributing um he was very pleased with it um So yes, but the thing is that, um, the, to establish this now leave the necessary condition point aside for a moment to establish this, what you do is you simply look at ordinary usage, which is all, you know, loud on this. Okay. So I give just a small number of quotations out of what are literally millions these days of knowledge attributions to, uh, uh, driverless cars to cash machines to insects to bees to all sorts of animals to humans to mathematicians who who don't have proofs for what they know so that's why i'm telling you it it kind of moves into to people with amnesia who still know certain things but don't know how or why they know um to to my favorite kinds of examples i call them Dorothy examples um, um, timid student examples where the person gets 50 answers right, but you don't tell them they're getting them right. You know, say uh, um, somebody who's 70, who studied French history 50 years ago, over 50 years ago, is convinced she's just guessing, but it's getting every answer right. And you're not telling her that everyone would agree. She knows French history. But she's rational, actually, not to believe it. she hasn't thought about it in the interim. She hasn't. Right. Um, It's rational for her to think she doesn't know these answers unless you're telling her every time that she does. So this is the kind of evidence that makes it clear that all of these necessary conditions aren't necessary for knowledge. So now the question is: This is what you 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 brought up. Oh, okay, I'll stop.
1: <laughs> yeah, I just I just wanted to cut in very quickly to make a, a broader point or question. So you mentioned that this argument or your views on knowledge depend on usage. Would you say that it or is it accurate to say that in the, this is in some sense a a Wittgensteinian account of knowledge as opposed to something maybe more normative about what knowledge ought to be like other contemporary more contemporary other non-azuni contemporary accounts of what knowledge is
0: um i'm gonna say no and here's why okay please because i do several things in the book one of them is you know one of them is what is the word we have and how does it work what are its properties? Okay, that's, that's completely descriptive. Okay, part of being descriptive, and this shows up in biology, and there's nothing yeah. weirdly, I think there's nothing weirdly non-natural uh, about it, are um, functional considerations. Okay, so there is a lot of literature out there where they try to figure out what the functional role of the word no is. Um, Just as there's a lot of literature where they try to figure out the functional role of the word true. I actually think I can find a functional role for the word no in usage. So, again, all descriptive. Now, turn the page. Um, We're all, you know, there's nothing wrong with uh, modifying language. It's not good enough. It doesn't have, you know, um, it doesn't have certain properties we think it should. You know, language mutates on its own and sometimes in the sciences and in mathematics quite consciously. So you can do the same thing with no. So now we're speaking normatively, you know, we might want to change the word. And I actually motivate that because in a certain sense, what I'm arguing is that the word no is a clutch. Okay, it's a bit of a mess because it's factive and but then there there are um, other constraints on it, reliability constraints, for example. Um, and you might think, and then I try to show that, it, and it's compatible with fallibility. The word is compatible with fallibility. It doesn't dictate fallibility or, or infallibility. It's just compatible. But it turns out because it is has these this conglomeration of properties, it's a word that's very easy to trip over when you're trying to philosophize about it. And this shows up just because of things like you can't say, or apparently can't say, um, I know it's raining out, but I might be wrong. And that sounds like the word can't be fallible, can't allow fallibility, because I can't seem to build fallibility in. So we can think about changing the word. And what I try to show is that given the function we need the word for, given that that function is indispensable, it turns out we can't conceptually engineer it. We can't turn it into something else. Some words are like that. Very few, maybe. But there are words that, yeah, it kind of, you know, that kludgy, awful thing does exactly a certain job, and if you change it, it won't do that job anymore. So, at that point, I'm as normative as someone like me is willing to get. OK, um, uh, this is it. We're stuck with it. But, you know, and here I'm kind of channeling Austin a long time ago. Austin said, you know, um, we might want to change a word. He was perfectly open to that. Um, but it's important to figure out what you've got first. And that's the job of the book. Here's what mm-hmm. we got. Here's what it does. And now here, unfortunately, is why you can't change it. Mm-hmm.
1: I found this section of your book actually quite, quite interesting. So where you point out, one, that the, the verb to know is a lexical universal. So every, every language has its own version of to know. And then it's also
0: immune to conceptual engineering. Right. And those don't have to go together. Right. A word can be a universal, a lexical universal, but still open to conceptual uh, modification because (laughs) that something is innate psychologically in a certain way. Linguistically innate tells us nothing about its optimality. And um, it just turns out with the word no that those properties dovetail. So I claim. (laughs) Mm -hmm. right but um that isn't going to be true i'm assuming for example that um uh, no well i'm just going to say i i i think other words are open to modification who that might be lexical universals but i think the shocking surprising fact is that no isn't one of them
1: well i i definitely took us on a tangent from where we were heading but it was a very important tangent so now maybe we can go back to how justification leads us to questions of meta-knowledge and then also i think this ties in very closely to introspection which is similarly very important to your work in epistemology
0: right okay so basically the way it goes is uh, and this shows up in um uh, attributing in a certain way. So there was at least one person that said to me, you know, one of the things I dwelt on is I undercut KK, right? Uh, Knowing that, you know, if you know P, then you know that you know P. And a lot of people felt that was kind of an open door. Why are you doing that for? In fact, the exciting thing to do these days, apparently, is to try to reestablish KK. So there are people trying to do that. And But I didn't like the way that KK had been undercut by Williamson in particular. I thought that was just mistaken Uh, because he, for one thing, he relies on confidence being a a necessary condition. And I'm saying, no, it's not, you know, you have to undercut KK some other way. But here's the point. The point is that here's a corollary. The corollary is something like this in ordinary usage. And now we're back to looking at usage again and um, what's going on, there's a constant shifting in human speech and in human thinking between cognition and metacognition, between knowing P and being aware that you know P and acknowledging that you know P. In effect, knowing that you know P and exhibiting it and just knowing P. And we run these two together all the time. And that turns out to be very important because you want to separate them. Because, of course, it's possible to know P without being aware of that fact that you know P. And for some creatures, knowing P doesn't open them to knowing that they know P. They haven't got those introspective qualities, abilities, as far as we know. And uh, this is something I'm willing to extend to a small class of human beings as well. Uh, By the way, having nothing to do with intelligence, in my view, it's it's just something else. Um, But where does um, evaluating whether, you know, P thinking about whether, you know, P right? Where does metacognition come in? Exactly with skepticism. It's exactly with challenging. Somebody challenges your knowledge. Um, nine times out of 10, what is going on is you are, as a result, stepping back and evaluating the question, do I know P? Mm -hmm. You may draw the conclusion, I do know P. And you may draw the conclusion, you don't know P. Now, already, this opens up an, an interesting piece of logical space, because what can happen, we realize in principle, is that in principle, right, this has to be spelled out and this is what's going on and challenging. One of the things that happens is somebody can draw the conclusion they don't know P and they're wrong. They do know P. They just think they don't because they bought into an argument. So this is a different way of looking at there's a lot of literature and misleading evidence and how it works. But one of the things that misleading evidence can do is not undercut your knowledge but undercut your knowledge that you have knowledge. Uh, And it might not even undercut that. You might actually know P, know that you know P, but believe none of this. All these cases, this is what happens. If KK is denied, and if other sorts of iterative psychological states, along with knowledge and belief, all come apart, you have a lot of possibilities, a lot of descriptive possibilities. And I think that's important because as soon as you start to look at the cases with a lot of care, you know, is the uh, person who, uh, you know, knows all these um, uh, facts about French history, is she, um, does she believe it? Does she not believe it? Is she confident? Does she think she's guessing? Does she not think she's guessing? Is she rational to think she knows it? Is she being, inappropriately modest, et cetera, et cetera. I'm starting to sound a little like Henry James, I fear. Um, the point is, this variety of descriptive options all becomes open, available to us descriptively. Um, you de- Once you deny KK and you deny these other iterations, which to deny is not to say they never hold, is to say they do hold under certain circumstances. And now you have the difficult problem of figuring out when and how you have both thought experiments in which you can stipulate that they hold in certain ways but you also have behavioral questions and then this is showing up and again I do this in attributing there's a bit of the discussion of the uh, uh the animal mind literature I'm talking about the the science okay where people are trying to figure out uh is the is the animal self-monitor Okay. Now we have to focus on it behaviorally. And you can see in that literature, the same thing happening that happens in the philosophical literature where we stumble over, um, knowing and knowing that, you know, and don't always distinguish these carefully because now we should realize they can be distinguished psychologically and, um, um, it's very hard to tell, especially with someone who simply won't talk to you about it because they can't. Um, uh, what's going on? Did I, I talk for you... a bit, or is this still?
1: No, this is all very good. I okay. something you mentioned at the beginning, and maybe I misinterpreted what you said. But I think you <laughs> what I what I think I heard you say was that the capacity for metacognition or meta knowledge is not determined by an organism's intelligence, but by something else. And I, I think that
0: the... I didn't quite want to say that what, what, you know, because, because first of all, I don't know quite what intelligence is. <laughs> and so very you, fair. Um, so I, I want to be careful. And if I did put it that way, mea culpa mea culpa i apologize i apologize what i had in mind was the following um there's a sense in which let's just focus on human beings for a moment um there's a sense in which some of us are more introspective than others uh and that as far as when we do a rough and ready evaluation of someone's intelligence uh, it cuts across that yeah and that's what I was getting at. And there are people who don't think about what they know, just as there are people there. There are great pe- there are people who are great at inferring. Okay, so there's a discussion in attributing, focusing specifically on deduction, because it's it's a common view, uh, philosophically entrenched view to some extent that deduction is. Um, uh, involves, can, can involve self-reference or can involve thinking about the process. And I'm thinking, no, it doesn't do that. And it doesn't have to do that. And some people who are phenomenal at inference don't engage in any thinking about the process. They simply infer. It's the same thing in this kind of case. There are people who, um, you know, Uh, gather knowledge, as it were, in all sorts of ways, but don't think very much about the process at all or about their process. And I'm simply saying these things come apart. Okay. And there was, yeah, that that was what I was getting at. And I do think, I do think, however, that the ability to do it, whether the human being chooses to or not, because there is some choice here, um, the, the ability to do, it does seem to call for certain kinds of cognitive capacities that it may be reasonable to think certain animals, certain species of animals don't have there. Okay. I hope I've now put it carefully enough that I'm not going to be embarrassed if yeah, I, am... yeah,
1: yeah, well, let's see if I can just make sure I get it in a sentence or two. So, um, Granted that we don't know what intelligence is exactly, so setting that aside, maybe there's some threshold of abstract thought power uh, necessary for metacognition. But like we know in people, uh, yeah, I mean, introspective capacity isn't linearly correlated with intelligence.
0: Yeah, I'm willing to say that. I, I I'm 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 a little concerned about the word abstract now because I, I was just reading a new Elements book on philosophy of mathematics and. And I'm like, the word abstract comes up. Okay, you know, yeah, I, I don't I, mean it. Kind of to sort of say, hey, here's some higher level stuff we're doing. And I'm like, well, there's a metaphor that tells me nothing. Um, so, you know, the point is, it looks like something is uh, coming into play that doesn't have to come into play. Yeah,
1: I could have easily left abstract out of there. Thought yeah, power. It's true yeah yeah yeah. okay
0: i mean this isn't just me being a nominalist prejudiced against that word it's that the word often is used to characterize kinds of thinking uh because we don't have any we because we don't we're just labeling it we don't actually have an analysis of it yet and that's the problem okay okay
1: before we move on to your more positive theses in challenging knowledge I just really quickly wanted to ask about a couple pieces of jargon, and that's what are the sortability and traceability theses?
0: Okay, so that's my um uh, shoot from the hip adoption of terminology to capture a very, very long-standing and deep-seated view we have about introspection, which is codified almost philosophically by Descartes, but surely predates him. And certainly, travels forward. It's one of those things where you want to, you don't want to give Descartes credit so much as simply, that's the guy who pointed to something we really kind of believe in a deep-seated way. This is the way I sometimes think about Quine's criterion, too. I mean, Quine just gave phrasing to something that everybody had been sort of, more or less kind of relying on for some time in some ways. Anyway, the idea is that When we do introspect, we have this idea that um, that certain faculties are almost um, transparently recognizable by us. I I, I'm I I I perform in a play, and I'm remembering the lines. I know that I'm remembering them. I'm not inferring the lines. Um, I might deduce, this has to be the word, I don't quite remember it. But generally speaking, we think to ourselves, when I'm seeing things, right, and this is leaving aside skepticism or anything like that, seeing is different from remembering, is different from inferring. And these are faculties of mind using the word faculty somewhat metaphorically that are transparent to me. I know what I'm doing. And so I can actually um, talk about pieces of knowledge and they come with little pedigrees. This is something I remember. This is something I inferred. This is something I saw happen. Okay. And the picture is we can take a piece of knowledge an episode that we remember or an episode that I describe to you later, I can, I can, um, you know, describe a conversation I was having with somebody and I'll say, I remember this exactly. And then this I'm not so sure about, but this was the gist of it, et cetera, et cetera. So the thought is we have that kind of a self-regarding control over these mental episodes. We can label them, we can locate them. So that's the assortability and traceability theses. We can sort them and we can trace the knowledge back. And that's literally what Descartes does in the second meditation. You know, he you know he decides, all I've got to go on in the contents of my mind, let's look at that stuff and, and, and locate it and label it. And that's what he does. And then he uses that as a tool against skepticism. So those are the theses, uh, roughly described. And of course, um, these days a philosopher doesn't bring something up and give it a label unless they want to refute it. So I'm going to claim, which I do <laughs> in the book, right, that th- that there is an enormous amount of cognitive science literature that shows that these theses are wrong along numerous dimensions okay and in fact i want to even put put it more strongly right to think in terms of faculties memory um um uh, sensory uh right inference um there isn't anything distinguishable like that as soon as you go below the, the surface of the phenomenology Okay. These things blend and are constituted in a certain sense of one another in all sorts of intricate ways. So, so much so that if you were going to try to do it accurate, describe it accurately, which we cannot do quite yet, we would simply toss the phenomenological terminology. Um, I have arguments for why we can't toss it, but there, there, there are arguments about about the evidence for the science okay but the point is that's the claim Mm -hmm. so I, i guess it was a lot at once but
1: no 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 that was fine you've raised though my curiosity you said that the contemporary psychology and cognitive science literature tells us that these two theses are wrong are there any interesting experiments that come to mind for you that have shown this
0: one of my favorite ones, and I'm, I'm not going to remember the details of it, but it's one of the more recent ones that I describe. Is this very, is the question of what's going on visually when we update? Okay. So the phenomenology is very clear. Here I am looking at you on the screen, and my impression, everyone's impression, this is so sad, everyone's impression is. I'm seeing everything in real time. I'm seeing it all in real time. Every little change that occurs. Okay. Well, now, that picture started to crack under the pressure of, oh, the change blindness uh, results. You know, the the famous little film where you're asked to concentrate on the basketball game and count the number of baskets. And then a guy comes in and a gorilla (laughs) Mm -hmm tosses it and then leaves it almost no one sees that until they replay it again. Right. So, but it turns out what's going on is the updating process. The visual updating process is ridiculously slow. And I've forgotten it's all in the book, the number of seconds. It's a large number of seconds where, Updating does not take place. And then it takes place very piecemeal and very jaggedly, not at all like the phenomenology. We're mostly when we're looking, we're mostly, well, the only language to use is remembering. So that that's a beautiful and the experiments that establish that are very, very nice. Because what they are basically are people doing estimates on how people age. So you've got these videos where people that their faces age or get younger or things move in a certain trajectory and things like that. And then people do estimates of how old people are. And then they show that those estimates systematically, it doesn't matter on the direction, so you get rid of artifacts. various sorts that might be in place. For example, it might be thought, oh, 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 you're you're underestimating how old someone looks because we have a bias towards younger or something like that. And you show all of that isn't happening. And you realize what's happening is that the reason the estimates are off is because of the updating mechanism is so slow. So that's a wonderful result. Um, And as I said, it's a pretty recent one. And it illustrates something nice about um, how the psychological literature, and this is something people don't always realize, they might wonder, why isn't this being studied? Why isn't that being studied? And often the answer is, this isn't being studied because we don't have the tools, okay? We need very specific kinds of tools and they have to emerge. And often what'll happen is a new lab and new people start to give these new results because they've gotten their hands on A new video device, you know, a new way of slicing and dicing what people are going to see and therefore what kinds of experiments you can um, uh, inflict on human beings who have volunteered for this.
1: Well, you mentioned that Descartes used the sortability and traceability theses to attack skepticism, but... Now that we don't have the sortability and traceability theses to use, we're going to have to come up with a new way to attack skepticism. And before we get to that, though, let's introduce your your novel framework in this book, which is starting point epistemology. So just what is SPE?
0: So the idea is, is that... Um everyone starts from a place well if they're human beings if they're if they're sentient beings they start from a place of knowledge there are things that they know if they're human beings they almost all human beings right if not all human beings they start not just from a place of knowledge but also from a place of what they think they know okay and uh, what they think they know, meta knowledge. Meta knowledge. Well, I, I wanted to be careful. Call it meta knowledge, purported <laughs> meta knowledge, okay. because there can right. be there can be deviations between in both directions. Things you think you know but you don't. Things that you think you don't know but you do. Okay. And the, the one of the things I try to do in challenging and it's also in attributing is show. These are not weird cases when there are deviants like deviations like this. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of stuff we know and don't realize or don't cognize that we know. And there's a lot of stuff we think we know and we don't know. People always focus on that one, but the other one is important too. And that the starting point of Pismasus says that's where you start. Now, there's more to the... Position because what it does is it almost leaves the starting gate um, uh, pushing back skepticism in a certain way. Not completely, but there's a kind of what I call a relativized burden of proof issue, which is you're starting from a place where you think you know every individual. By the way, this is not a kind of Quinean global. What's my knowledge? Well, you know, uh, it's what we all know collectively, and I get to know that, too. Um, that's not the picture. Uh, the picture is I get to know what I get to know. Now, I can also, and I don't talk about this in challenging, but I, I hope to talk about it in another book. Um, um, I don't talk about this in challenging, but, you know, there is what we know, and that's a perfectly legitimate use of the word no so i can say we know a lot of details about intuitionism and of course it may be that i don't know those details okay um or i know some of those details it all depends but i'm not going to focus on that i'm focusing on the i what is it i know but whatever it is i know um the the, uh, the platitudinous point is that I'm not going to accept a challenge to that unless I recognize it as a challenge it isn't rational for me to um, drop a claim to know something unless I recognize a challenge to it as a challenge now that said I don't want to be too philosophical about this the philosopher may be immediately thinking, and I have a tendency to do this too. All oh, right, challenge. You mean argument against your position? You have to be moved by an argument. Well, no, no. I may be the sort of person who believes everything. Who, who believes everything that so and so says? Okay, that may be part of what I think I know. That. What so-and-so says is true. So if so-and-so says P, but I've been thinking not P, I may drop not P on that basis. I want to claim that would not be irrational. Okay? So that's kind of the starting point. The starting point is a combination for a human being of knowledge and purported meta-knowledge. I'm saying of knowledge because I may or may not know what I know. But there it is. And then there's meta knowledge, uh, some of which I may have and some of which I may be wrong about. And that's the starting point. And so the thought is, you know, we can say in principle, but in principle here has to be understood very carefully, that's open to uh, revision. But we really have to recognize to say that in principle, that's open to revision is not the same thing as to say, it's possible that I'm wrong. So, I mean, one of the reasons that the book is so large, Mia culpa, is that I actually tried to work all this out. Um, is that, did that work? As a- That
1: worked. Now, just just briefly, just a, a few sentences maybe before we go on. What are some of the things you have in mind that all humans know and that all humans think that they know? Maybe it's not the same thing for everybody, but I was
0: just wondering. For everybody, but it's everything from, Uh, first of all, this massive amounts of ordinary knowledge that everyone has that we might call local knowledge. Okay, Um, uh, in my neighborhood, I know where the nearest key food is. I know um, uh, that a tomato is not an orange. I know that um, uh, Europe is a place I've been to several times okay. that South America is a place I'm going to go to soon. stuff like so that this
1: answers my question though. I mean everybody it's just a contingent fact that I mean if you look at any human they'll they'll have some knowledge of some sort exactly instrument. It's okay,
0: a con- got it. And I actually think. And I think I say this in challenging, but again, everything that I think I say in challenging, I don't know what will happen once I revise it, the last revision. But um, um, I think um, um, we start getting knowledge very early, extremely mm-hmm. early. OK, even if the knowledge is knowledge of, whoa, that's interesting. Bright color there. <laughs> Stuff like mm-hmm. that. It's knowledge. Mm hmm. Now, this is something. This is a point I made in attributing, right? And I, I, I'm just repeating it again here. You don't have to have a lot of cognitive resources to have knowledge, and your pieces cash of knowledge, register. What? What
1: cash register, for example?
0: That's right. And furthermore, um, you your pieces of knowledge don't have to be interconnected in any way. There's no coherentism uh, requirement on knowledge. So, you know, you could know six things. And if you're a cash machine, I imagine what you know is finite. Mm-hmm. I think the Roomba knows it a bit. And the early versions of the Roomba didn't know that much. But they knew things. But they did know they knew. So, yeah. Mm. Well,
1: I think I mentioned at the outset... Of this conversation but none of my episodes so far have been devoted to the basics of epistemology so it was very helpful to start with uh, foundationalism coherentism and infinitism. and in that same spirit i'm hoping that we can flesh out spe by relating it back to some of these <clears throat> other major topics of epistemology so in this spirit I know we already referred to skepticism, but what in particular is Cartesian skepticism? And since we now know that Descartes failed in refuting it with his uh, defunct theses, how does SPE avoid it?
0: Well, I mean, what happens with skepticism is, um, in a nutshell, the main thing is skepticism, uh, Cartesian skepticism is the raising of possibilities that undercut knowledge, and uh, now there's a question of analyzing what the notion of possibility is that's coming into play. And what happened for a lot of people in the late 20th century is they decided that possibility was a species of logical possibility. Uh, it, wouldn't, it wasn't every logical possibility. It had to be logically logical possibility compatible with an agent's uh, evidence. Characterized in some way, whatever that evidence would be, okay. But otherwise, the logical possibilities were supposed to be compatible with that. And um, what I want to argue, what I do argue in in challenging and it's crucial, is that logical possibility is not the relevant notion of possibility. Okay, so um, the Cartesian skeptic builds their challenge on possibilities. But of course, Descartes was not thinking of logical possibility. Um, He was raising possibilities that in some sense were ones that his uh, targets would take seriously. And so one of the things that Descartes does at a certain point is um, after he raises the demon, which looks like the most corrosive uh, possibility, he turns around and he says, well, maybe you're not into that, essentially. Um, so imagine, and now he's got some sort of Lucretian picture in mind. You you, you came together, a bunch of atoms and things or moving items in the void, you know, conglomerated, and there you were. And then he says, what, again, I'm using my language and it's tendentious, so, you know, I, there are historians who are, are quietly gagging at the moment if they're hearing what I'm saying and I apologize but what he said, essentially says is look um, uh, you wouldn't be a very good epistemic engine if that's how you came to be so um, that's going to rule you out as well so what Descartes is doing here is he's he's thinking of possibilities that are ones that are really going to challenge who he's talking to And I think that's the right picture that our possibilities are not logical possibilities. They're not outside our body of knowledge. They're within our body of knowledge. They're possibilities that we take seriously, that we recognize to be real. Now, there's a good question. How are we supposed to characterize those possibilities? And my claim is, we characterize them to the extent we do, the human beings who do this, in terms of our methods of gathering knowledge. So now this doesn't look so far away from from traditional views, because you say, yes, 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 I look and see, that's a method. Okay, and then there are questions of how it can go wrong. That's my picture. So my picture is those are the, the, the possibilities, and we have to uh, they're not logical possibilities. They're possibilities arising out of what we take our methods of gathering knowledge to be. Now the move is um, once you s- you have that in place, you've got a hard job and you've got a hard job. I mean, to, to refute the skeptic because now it's going to offer possibilities. Right. And um, but this is going to, it's going to, slice and dice things a little differently from the way we might think they're sliced and diced so for example someone like me you know you bring up the evil demon omnipotent omniscient and i'm like uh i don't think that's a real possibility um um how does that work how does omnipotence work I mean, what's the machinery of omnipotence i don't get it okay so then you you, you show up with and by the way, there's a nice question here. Who came up with this first? The brain in the vat. Okay. Um, I, I, you know, uh, Putnam popularized it. It looks like it was in Nozick before that. I actually think a version of it shows... Now, someone will correct me on this, but I think a version of it shows up really first in Gilbert Harmon's book, Thought. He's hmm. got he's got a guy on a, a surgical table and the surgeon's having a little fun with the brain. Or, you know... Et cetera, et That happens the- often for philosophers, it seems. What? Yeah, right. <laughs> but anyway, the thing is, this is something that I'm supposed to take more seriously. Why? Because we start to tell a story. Here's how the computers work. It's connected to the brain. You know how the brain works, right? You know that if we can circumvent stuff coming in through the nerve centers and, and you know, do a little bit of uh, um, uh, clever surgery, hmm, that's possible, isn't it? So you really have to go into the fine-grainedness of these possibilities. You can't just, you know, wave your hand anymore and just go, well, you know, uh, maybe your brain in a vat. You have to really, you know, come up with something. And so in the latter part of the book, I have to take really seriously and look at the literature, the scientific literature on things like lucid dreaming, And on things like hallucinations. What kinds of hallucinations can we have? And can they be used to, uh, for the skeptic as a challenge? So that's kind of the picture. And I draw the, but again, this, this has empirical hostages. I draw the conclusion, um, there are no possibilities of the sort that the skeptic needs to achieve skepticism. So that's, at the end of the day, the refutation of skepticism.
1: But this is the refutation of Cartesian skepticism. This and is the
0: refutation of Cartesian skepticism. There's the re- also Peronic. I was going
1: to say, yes, there's also Peronic skepticism. So, that's right. I mean, you, you gave a really nice and helpful explanation of Cartesian skepticism. What is Peronic skepticism before we get to how well, SPE Pironic attacks it?
0: Um, the version that I'm kind of interested in is the one that's coming out of Agrippa's Trilemma. So the idea is that, um, the idea is that, I mean, there's, there's a couple of things here. Um, and so, again, the literature is very large. There's, there's the, the idea that you have um, um, any position that you might come up with uh, to um, uh, needs a justification, but any opposing position can come up with an equally good justification. And so one of the pictures is um, if you're going to have a position, it has to be justified. and the problem is as soon as you need justification, you're you' you're, you you have given a hostage to the skeptic because um, you're not going to be able to, meet the justification burden is that yeah that's essentially the idea now the the response on my part is that um um it's twofold one of them is that the picture that the peronic skeptic offers of how philosophical debate or any sort of debate operates is just wrong okay debates get resolved to our satisfaction. So that's one point. The other point is that justification gets undercut because in the following sense, you can have knowledge without justification. That is to say, you can know things without being able to justify them. In fact, there are things you know. In fact, there are things you know you know that you cannot justify simply because of the nature of how justification works. Um, so this involves a claim about analyzing justification, but one of the things that justification is supposed to do is raise the um, likelihood of what you're claiming, raising it, the likelihood of it's being true, okay? And the thought here is, There are some things you know. There's nothing you can offer to raise the likelihood. One of those things are there's an external world. Um, That's something I know and that you know. And I actually think we know it on broadly reliable grounds, but we can't justify it because anything we're going to offer to justify it is ultimately going to look circular the reason it looks circular is because there's no right way to raise the justification to uh, of there is an external world anything you're going to offer is um, already baked in as it were that doesn't mean you don't know it it just means it doesn't have to be justified so that's the that's kind of the, the, the whole picture.
1: Maybe I, I missed it, but this example with the external world is an example of first-order knowledge that we have but can't justify. Did you also give an example of second-order knowledge that we have?
0: <laughs> um, well... I don't know if I did, but here's something that looks like it. I know that I know there's an external world. I can't justify that either.
1: Right. I guess you can, you know that, you know, you know that X. Uh, where X is a a knowledge uh, a statement of the form "I know that X," but you can't verify the contents of X. Well, I
0: keep I, I mean, in a certain sense, I can verify it, but it's kind. It looks empty. The verification looks empty, and that's because I can't raise its likelihood with anything I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean I don't know it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Again. Now you go back to attributing. When you realize what the conditions are on knowing, you realize, of course, you, you you can know something without being able to justify it. Right. So Look
1: at all the dogs and cash registers. Look at
0: all the dogs and cash machines and cats, etc. I don't want to be deprived. I want to be with them. So, but it turns out I can be, provided I recognize all this. By the way, I get to know there's an external world, even if I'm a skeptic. I'm just wrong if I'm a skeptic. I'm wrong about what I think I know.
1: <laughs> well, there are there are two more questions that I have about SPE. And I guess I just want to make a, a brief aside. There are some albums. This is just how I'm feeling about this podcast episode. At, yeah, in the moment, um, there are some albums. One that comes to mind for me is Green Day Dookie, which happens to be like the first album that I ever had. Yeah. I think my dad gave it to me. Do you know that album by any chance?
0: I don't know if I do. I know some of their songs. I tend to be a song person with group okay. rather than an album person. I, I you know, there's practically only two or three or four albums that I like. It's almost always just songs from So I I was gonna say spell it out if you're willing to. Yeah,
1: yeah, no. All I was going to say is that it to me is one of a handful of perfect albums where every song goes neatly into the next. I love every song and I wouldn't change the order or take any out or add any new ones. And this podcast is I don't want to say that it's it's perfect in the way that this album is, but everything so far is really hanging together, and it's really coherent, and it's also a well, very that's... difficult topic. I mean, you mentioned that, or maybe you just mentioned to me, but this manuscript challenging knowledge is quite difficult, and I think epistemology is quite difficult in general. And
0: I, I was hoping, now you can correct me on this, because I take it you looked at the manuscript quite a bit. Of course. I was hoping... That it wasn't difficult to read, but was merely a difficult subject covering a lot of territory. I was trying to make it as readable as possible. I really was. If I didn't succeed, I didn't succeed. And that's okay. I mean.
1: No, no. It's very readable. And a lot of philosophy is impenetrable. I was saying that epistemology in general is very quite difficult subject but i mean a lot of it was very readable like the entire introduction about quine and naturalizing epistemology i mean they're yeah very good very readable
0: okay good and
1: people will have to wait like a year and a half to read it
0: now so sorry but there's attributing which i hope also is readable yes and um the thing i wanted to say is maybe you were going to go here but epistemology is very very difficult but it's very very difficult and it's in a very different way from how let's say philosophy of mathematics is difficult or philosophy of science. I mean, it turns out all philosophy is difficult, I think, but it's all difficult in different ways. Anyway, go ahead.
1: No, sure, let's continue with that thread. I think of philosophy of math as being difficult because as soon as you start doing philosophy of math, you realize you need to know a lot of math and that's what makes it difficult. Whereas epistemology, has a lot of very abstract, I, I'm sorry for using this words, but these, that word uh, very abstract, unintuitive moves like all of these things with uh, safety, reliability. There's a lot of jargon that you need to know and a lot of moves that get made. Uh, possible worlds, all sorts of things.
0: That's you- right. all right. But you realize all of this is not intrinsic to epistemology, right? Uh, which is not to say it's illegitimate or to say that it's just been imported artificially. I mean, look, um, possibilities were central to epistemology right from Descartes on, if not before. And once we had what looked like a logical grip on possibility, namely um, modal logic, We were going to import it. Somebody was going to import it. It was unavoidable. And so, yes, that makes epistemology difficult. What also makes epistemology difficult is that you've got all these technical facts, and yet it's rooted in natural language. Mm. And all of the things that made epistemology difficult for a thousand years from its inception are still in place, making it difficult. And then there's all this new stuff, making it more difficult. So, yeah, I I agree with you. Philosophy of mathematics, you're right. You have to learn a lot of mathematics. But it's also difficult for other reasons. It's difficult for reasons, I think, anyway, because um, there's a lot of seduction. There's a lot of cognitive seductions that kick in, and they're the things that drove us to be Platonists to begin with. We became Platonists not for silly reasons, but because of of deep-seated views we had about how truth worked, or why a subject matter would be um, successfully applied, and things like that. And so what's happening, in my view, with philosophy of mathematics, what makes it difficult is if I feel if you're going to make progress, um, there's a lot of dismantling. There's a lot of analysis that's off stage having to do with things going on with truth and with commitment and with which you you might not have thought we're going to be so involved. OK,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I
1: had not been I, I think thinking a... about that, but I suppose what? we enter epistemology without these same deep-seated intuitions that are very tough to uproot. Luckily for me, I entered philosophy of math with the correct intuition that Platonism is wrong.
0: <laughs> oh, all right. Well, I mean, that's, you know, lucky for you. I did not. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm more or less, uh, at least as a graduate student, as an undergraduate student, I kind of Bought the Quinean picture. Um, that's not an illustration of intuitions, I guess, but they were pretty early for me. So I had to work out of all of that. Actually,
1: Well, returning to, to this thread that I started with, just fleshing out SPE with regard to some of the central topics in epistemology there are there were a couple couple last things that i wanted to mention and that is first what is the internalism externalism debate and how does it relate to spe and i guess by extension your view of knowledge and attributing knowledge
0: well We have, or seem to have, a lot of strong internalist intuitions. And those amount to something to the effect of, um, if I'm going to know something, I have to be coming from a psychologically centered position where psychologically I have a grip on my justification. Okay, so the internalist thinks you have to have these things. And therefore, an internalist is often going to reach for talk of intellectual integrity and things like that. Um, The externalist is thinking, you don't have to have these things. The world has to be uh, right in a certain respect, and you have to have the right faculties, even if, in point of fact, you don't realize you have the right faculties. So that's kind of the um, the split. And I've been very broad about my presentation of it because there are many different kinds. But it's important to realize, I think, that I think this is right. Internalism was the view for epistemology, unlike justified true belief, you know, that model, some sort of picture of I have to have justification in hand goes all the way back um, in epistemology. And the reliablest picture is a 20th century product, okay, um, attributed usually to Armstrong and Goldman, right? Very late. And I think there's, there may be an earl- earlier figures, but, and on my view, the, um, the, really, the right picture for knowledge is a, is an externalist picture. And then someone says, But what, where's all this internalism coming from? The internalist intuitive. My answer is, Well, that shows up with the metacognition. That shows up with the meta knowledge. That's when that comes into play. So I literally look at certain cases that the internalist has raised against reliableist picture, like, you know, the clairvoyant who has no reason to think she uh, does know the future, but is reliable in this respect. And that's usually a variance of that picture used to challenge externalism. And I'm saying, notice when you look at the analysis that what's kicking in is always, it wouldn't be rational for someone to believe they were clairvoyant under these circumstances. And my response is you're right. Wouldn't be rational. Doesn't mean they don't know (laughs) what's, what's true is they shouldn't believe that they know and they're rational not to believe it, but they know. And really when you analyze, I think the cases all fall out very nicely, but this is on my view. This is, uh, The debate is due to a miscalibration of what is ground floor knowledge and what is not ground floor knowledge, but knowledge about or beliefs about that knowledge.
1: Well, Jody, the last thing that I wanted to ask was about, again, another um, important concept in epistemology, and that is the fallibility of knowledge. So right. goes, what is, what is the fallibility of knowledge and how does SPE handle it?
0: Well, actually the way it's handled is, um, SPE doesn't handle it directly. Although I, since I'm an SPE and I believe the things I'm about to tell you, it's part of the SPE arsenal. But the, the idea is very simple is that, um, uh, it turns out claim Um, Knowledge is fallible in the following sense. All our methods for knowing anything can go wrong. That's all that means. And the fact that our methods can go wrong doesn't mean they're not methods for knowledge. Okay, that's where the fallibility comes in. Now you have to be able to spell that out right where you don't end up giving a, a, a principle like, you know, uh, to fallibly know P implies that P could be false. You really don't want to do that because uh, if P is a necessary truth, then P can't be false. And, blah, 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 blah. and it's misfocusing where the issue is. The issue is, of course, on the methods, not on P. Not on the yield of the methods, but on, as it were, the nature of the yield, okay? That's where fallibility comes in. And so the, the claim is straightforward. The word no is fallible. The usage is clearly compatible with fallibility. We attribute knowledge all over the place, I think legitimately, where the agents are all fallible. It's also compatibility compatible with infallibility, okay, because we some of us anyway, attribute knowledge to agents that we take to be, to have infallible methods. It turns out Malcolm, who thought the word was ambiguous along precisely this line, is wrong because we can say things like um, both God and I know that only good people go to heaven. Okay, so we're attributing knowledge both to me and to God. And my knowledge is fallible. Even as an atheist, I, my knowledge is fallible, but God's knowledge is not. Perfectly acceptable sentence. So as far as the usage of the word is concerned, it's just open to both of these. Now the complications come in because when you want to express that fallibility in a straightforward way, you get preface paradoxes, you get um, uh, Morian paradoxes, you get all this weird stuff. And now the question is why? And you have to analyze why. And that turns on analyzing usage and seeing how it works. So that's what I think is going on with fallibility. The SP is just takes that on board. That helps against the skeptic. That's one of the tools that will help down the road in the second book against the skeptic. Why? Because um, one of the skeptics, one of the things a skeptic does is they push people to extremes. And we have a tendency to accept that. So I'll say, I know P, and the person will go, oh, but you could be wrong. And then I'm panicked and I go, okay, I guess I don't know P. And what's going on here is, no, you, you still know P. if, If P is true, you still know it. Your methods are good, but you are backtracking. And we need to analyze why that backtracking occurs. And I think it's a purely linguistic phenomena. It doesn't just show up with, no, it shows up with flat. It shows up with a lot of words. And what it's key, what it's actually connected to is what I call, you know, um, uh, I have a long term for it, but no is vague, simply vague. It's just simply lexically vague. Maybe that's what I call it. Um, And the idea is that there can be sliding, not because the word is contextually infiltrated, nothing linguistically sophisticated like that is coming into play, simply because it's vague. And when words are vague, they should slip and move. Hmm. So that's the picture. Now, as I said, we're talking about usage again here. And the SPE me anyway, this SPE is, I can say all these things that I know about the word no, I know them. And now I can use them against the skeptic. Mm-hmm. So, well, you, you... yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead, please. Um, I was going to say, so now this is the sense in which I'm sort of doing what Descartes originally was doing, which was Descartes said, Descartes wanted to know, as it were, at least that's his official stance. He wanted to know what he knew and didn't know, what he knew and didn't know. And so I'm doing the same thing. I want to know what I know and don't
1: know. Well, you stressed when we were comparing epistemology to the philosophy of math that one thing that makes epistemology difficult is that it depends so heavily on natural language but I think that this is a major strength of your account because so many other views don't strike me as sensitive to this important connection
0: yeah I t- to strike a critical note, yes but, um, um, most views do one of the two following. They often design a formalism, a no, a no formalism, without exactly. much concern with whether the thing is applicable. Mm-hmm. The, applicable means, you know, that we can use it. Okay, and here they're making the same kind of mistake that somebody might make who develops some elaborate mathematics always acceptable to develop elaborate mathematics, not acceptable to claim, oh, this thing that I developed over here can be used in physics or can be used and applied this way without giving good reasons for why it it can be used. So that's one problem. The other problem, in a way, is worse, which is that people, there are people that, look, there are people that are very sensitive to usage and they're good in epistemology, but there are a lot of people who don't appreciate that if you're going to look at usage, you better look at usage. Um, Put it this way. Usage is evidence. That's all it is. It's evidence, which means, you know, um, at the end of the day, it doesn't compel. But the right thing to think about evidence is evidence is hard. Evidence takes subtlety evidence takes evaluation. And I think too many people who nod to usage don't appreciate. Well, don't stop there. Really pay attention to it. Really look at the linguistics. That's the requirement. If you're going to take usage seriously. Again, mm-hmm. if you want to make it something up, great. I mean, you know, that that's nice too.
1: Right. Regarding, I mean, this design or designing this formalism, the first case that you mentioned, that's what I was saying earlier when I was comparing your account, which I <laughs> described as Wittgensteinian in its oh. attention to usage, to others that I said were normative. And I meant that they were normative in the sense that their epistemology concerned some ideal. Uh, contrived form of knowledge, what they want knowledge to be, rather than knowledge that we have or use or that is related to
0: can use Mm is right? I mean, you don't want to come up with a a formalism that characterizes a word a certain way, and then we can't use that word for what we need it for. And that's often, there there are programs of kind of splintering the word now. We have lots of different kinds of notions of no. And that actually infirms the word for what we want to use it for. You know, that's something that has to be shown, but I think it can be shown. So, mm-hmm. yes, I, I now I understand what you were were getting at at that point, And that's right. Um, I want to be careful about something, though. Um, I actually feel that if there's a progenitor that I should sort of bend the knee to in some ways, it ought to be Austin rather than Wittgenstein, because there's a way in which I thought Wittgenstein was militantly thinking that natural language was open-ended in a way that I'm not convinced it is, and that it was not itself amenable to scientific study, which I am also convinced it is. And it seems to me on this score, Austen uh, differed. OK, so I think you, the picture is pay attention, bring the best linguistics you can to bear. And then do epistemology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't and I, I, I don't quite think that's the given his overall uh, approach. But again, I can be corrected on this by uh, historians
1: well jody this has been great it's another installment of the Azuni ongoing azuni anthology in the books and when challenging knowledge comes out i'm certainly going to give it a plug in an introduction to some subsequent episode or we can uh, time another conversation to coincide with the release but thanks again and as always i mean for sharing your time and your really wide-ranging philosophical interests
0: thank you very much for
1: inviting me hold on geeslings before you go please uh like subscribe follow if you haven't already smash all those buttons and also if you haven't followed me on uh twitter at robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as i eat my pint of ice cream on twitch at robinson Earhart on robinson eats please do so